Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hi, Amber. And we have a co-host this week that's joining us, Dean Seal. Hey, guys. Happy to be here. Dean, De- it's great to have you. Dean, it's so great to have you on the show. And I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to ask something. I want to introduce you to the people a little bit. And I, frankly, I've wanted to ask you this for a long time. Now, you're, now you go by Dean Seal. But as I understand it, your name is James Dean Seal. Is that right? That is correct, yes. Do you, do you care to explain that? Um, you know, I wish that there was more of a fun story. Um, my brother is named after Jack Daniels. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, and that was, it started out as a, uh, the first name was a send-up to a grandfather and, you know, to one of my, my father's dad. And then the middle name was just kind of a joke. And so when it came around to me, they, you know, same thing, a grandfather's name. And then they thought, James... Dean, that's hilarious, and uh, here we are. Uh, James is leaving out that his mother's named Marilyn Monroe. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Shh, not here, okay? Not, this is not the time to disclose. This. When you when you first started working here, I really like. It's funny that you say it was a joke because I thought it was a joke. I was like, "There's no way," because for a while that was your byline, right? Uh, I, I think that that's what they tried to make my byline. I, <laughs> they tried yeah, to make it. Yeah, I, I don't know why I didn't uh, just grab onto that when I was, you know, 21 and trying to pick a byline. I for some reason went with what people actually call me, which is the oh. hardest name. It's a two-syllable monstrosity of a byline name, and I've been told ever since then, like, you had James Dean right there. You could have done it at any time. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Uh, well, here we are. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to get to the bottom of that. Anyway, um, we do. Uh, so you're going to ask about securities or. The no, law? no, no, no. Um, I'm but sure. We stick with the important things here. <laughs> I understand. Your, your identity as a as a person. <laughs> um, got a really good show for you this week. Um, there are some things we want to want to touch off right away, though. Busy SCOTUS week. Uh, which I think everybody who's listening to this knows there were arguments on the gun rights case um, and the big abortion case that everybody's watching. Um, do want to just give a shout out to the term. Jimmy and Natalie have wall to wall coverage on that. They're breaking down all the stuff you need to know. So um, we're not covering that stuff here. We have some really interesting stories to talk about. Um, but if you are interested in that stuff, definitely check out the term as always. I also have one more thing to shout out um, that's going on in our newsroom that was a big deal this week. Law 360 Pulse released a new law firm ranking. This one's called the Social Impact Leaders. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool because it takes a look at how firms stack up on things like racial and ethnic diversity, gender equality, employee engagement, and also pro bono service. So things beyond just straight financials, which you see a lot. This is a little bit different. It's actually the first part of a larger project our newsroom is working on. It's going to rank law firms on a bunch of different metrics. And if you're interested in that and you want to play around with the charts, see where your firm ranks, that kind of stuff, you can go on over to our website to find it. Yeah, that's a super interesting project um, that we just rolled out. And there's lots of interesting uh, follow-up coverage that we've done in terms of sort of firms engaging with their communities and all that. So it's um, uh, if that is of interest to you, definitely check it out. And we also want to do a quick little preview of the conversation that Dean and I had with Ben Guerreri. We talked to him later in the show. He's one of our employment experts because OSHA finally released some vaccine mandate regulations that people were anxiously awaiting to see exactly how that would all work for companies. So Ben breaks down all the details. Yes, uh, that's a great conversation. Um, the last time we had Vin on was when that they were announced and it was basically Bill and I talking to him and him saying, well, we'll see when the regs come out. And now the regs are out and he's been filing like a madman and he was um, kind enough to make make some room for us this week. Yeah, so that's a lot of stuff for us to have sort of previewed up top, but we also have some news just to get into. Alex, I think you have our first story. We do have news to get into. I wanted to talk about Jay-Z, who um, 
depending on your age, if you're listening to this, I have to tell you, he used to be quite a good rapper before he became like a bland corporatist. Uh, I was I had this working theory of like if you're if you're under 25 or over 55, you probably only became aware of Jay Z when he was like doing like commercials and right. stuff. I think that's actually probably true because I feel a little insulted by you calling him a corporatist, but I, it's because I'm between those two numbers. It hurts me too. I'm 36. <laughs> I listen. I like, reasonable doubt was. I mean, d- uh, anyway, um, I called him a corporatist. Maybe that's unfair. Um, ironically, though. He is now facing allegations that he might not have been corporatist enough. Um, he is on. He offered testimony this week in a contract breach trial. Um, he's basically rebutting claims from a uh, cologne company that he failed to promote his gold Jay Z cologne uh, that he had entered into a partnership with his company, and they said he didn't do enough to pr- to promote it. Uh, his testimony was quite colorful and even uh, ventured toward combative at times. And uh, our our own star, Frank Runyon, was all over this. He had some great dispatches from the trial. And I thought it would be good to just note some of the some of the highlights from from his testimony. Well, before we dig into the highlights, just set us up with what this case is actually about, because I know you said cologne and something about a deal gone wrong. It's fairly straightforward. Like I say, it's contract breach. And so it's just a piece of paper that's, you know, two two people uh, agreed to certain terms. And now there's a disagreement over whether those terms were honored. So the case was brought by a fragrance maker called Parlux. And that company sued Jay-Z's company in 2016, claiming that they had entered into this partnership with him to promote this cologne, uh, for, for him to promote the cologne that they were that they had made and were going to sell. The company says that Jay-Z didn't honor that contract at all, that he bailed on a bunch of promotional appearances, and that he cost them about $18 million in sales. Jay-Z, for his part, countersued. He actually said that the company basically sullied the brand by kind of trying to sell the cologne in these down-market stores. Uh, I think uh, at, at one point has said... Uh, you know, my client wasn't interested in selling his fragrance like next to Tic Tacs on a department store <laughs> shelf or something. Um, so they're clearly at odds about who failed to uphold their end of the contract. And now we're at trial. Um, and that's uh, that about brings us up to speed. So I feel like we see celebrities, whether they're artists or corporatists, we see celebrities <laughs> get the, find their names in lawsuits all the time, but we don't actually see them taking the stand very much. What did that look like? Yeah. For one thing to to know here is that he was only supposed to testify on one day, Friday. And as Frank wrote in his coverage, it spilled into Monday as his his back and forth with the Parlux attorneys became very contentious and it started moving very slowly. There were lots of sidebars about what exactly was being discussed. But the point is, it became like pretty combative. Um, and I just thought it would be good to highlight some some exchanges between yeah. Jay-Z and uh, some of the lawyers. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't. I, it wasn't like he was like doing trial by combat or something. This wasn't a, a cipher that he was on. Right? No, okay, no, 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 no. Gotcha. Um, good, <laughs> sick reference, bro. Uh, really appreciate hey, we, that. We only get one segment to do this. We yeah, got to them all in. Yes. Yeah. Um, so on Friday, the first day he took the stand, Parlux's lawyer was pressing Hova on the details, the actual details of the contract that are at issue in the dispute here, and like what appearances he was required to make before the cologne launched at Macy's. And at one point, the lawyer just straight up asks him 
if he had actually read the contract that he signed, and after he kind of hemmed and hawed a little bit, uh, Jay-Z actually lays it out clean. He said, quote, this is on, on the stand, he says, quote, no, I did not read the contract. I'm not a lawyer. My lawyer read it. I signed it. All I can say is I have creative control over the things I do. Um, okay, I get what Confirming our suspicions, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> you, I, I don't think that every celebrity who gets some branding contract reads it themselves. Right. Contracts are like the terms of service for celebrities. That's like a they're good just point. There that's a, well, that's, that's a contract, a too. Point. Yes, right. yes. I, I get it, but, you know, me and every other lawyer hearing this is like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so on Monday, this spilled into Monday, as I said, uh, the way Frank writes it, he said he was like basically like visibly annoyed to even be there and getting pretty irritated with the line of questioning. And that became even more apparent on Monday. Um, he at one point just kind of chided the opposing counsel for using, quote, little lawyer tricks. <laughs> Saying it on the stand is like, you're doing lawyer tricks, lawyer who's examining me. I can't wait for him to drop the new single, Little Lawyer Tricks. Yeah, right. Um, the... Uh, I had a joke I could say. I'm not going to do it. Um, the, <laughs> the 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 issue there arose when uh, the lawyer was basically trying to um, highlight some discrepancies between depositions that Jay Z gave like two years ago in the run up to trial and the and the and the testimony he was giving now on the stand. And at one point, Jay Z again, kind of pulling the mask off, said. Uh, he didn't really take the deposition that seriously because he didn't anticipate that that it would result in a trial. He said, quote, these kinds of shakedowns happen all the time. They rarely make it to court. I didn't think we'd be here today. You know, he's not wrong, though. <laughs> Same I mean, what a we're lot all of thinking. Lawsuits, right. Yes. Well, most lawsuits don't make it to court, especially contract right. disputes. And, you know, as 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 Dean said, I mean, celebrities get sued all the time for all manner of things. And they to go to trial is rare and to testify on your own behalf is even is even rarer. One last piece I wanted to highlight on this. All that was sort of exchanges with opposing counsel. But when his own lawyer did some obviously pretty softball redirect, the jury was at one point shown a commercial that Parlux had developed for the cologne, which featured a woman that was like dripped in like liquid gold. And Jay-Z, very aware of his own brand, offered uh, this assessment, quote, pretty much like all their ideas lazy and then later on uh they were shown emails where jay-z said that the ad was like it's a b-rate commercial and it's got my name on it and then on the stand when he was asked to expound on that he said i was being kind which which <laughs> generated some laughter from from the jury so he was he was really not in the mood for for what was going on there. i mean it sounds like we've had the biggest piece of the fireworks of the trial with his own testimony what happens next though yes so um, the trial was supposed to end this week. Um, is actually uh, supposed to end Friday, the day that we're that we're releasing this. I talked to Frank. He was like, "That's clearly not going to happen. This is moving for a, for a litany of reasons at a very slow pace." Um, and the de and the defense has not even presented its case yet. But one thing to keep an eye on when they do is that earlier in the trial, Jay Z's lawyers um, basically floated this. I mean, the main defense is that he just thought the brand was sullied by it being sold in stores that he didn't really approve of or whatever. But in questioning, uh, his lawyers kind of floated this idea that part of the reason he was reluctant to promote the, the fragrance was because it was being sold in Macy's, which had the exclusive rights to the launch. And part of that, like um, in 2013, Macy's got caught up in this controversy about racial profiling in its stores where 
if there were shoppers of color in the stores, they would be subject to like greater scrutiny or they thought that they were more likely they were being monitored more closely or they were like being questioned about shoplifting. Um, this was known, this was termed by activists as, um, shop and frisk. And this came up kind of sideways at an earlier stage in questioning, but Jay-Z's attorneys have said they will be calling witnesses to testify about exactly the extent to which like this scandal around the retailers impacted his willingness to like promote the product. There's some discrepancy about the timeline here and all of that. But if you're curious about that, that's, that's a thing to watch. Um, when Frank mentioned this on Twitter, I asked him if, as part of evidence for this uh, discussion, they would be submitting the Jay-Z verse from the Rick Ross song, Devil is a Lie. Uh, Frank didn't reference this. He didn't answer me. But this is my podcast, and we can we can run that right now. Yeah, you seen what I did to the stop and frisk. Brooklyn on the Barney's like we on the... Get the money to the hood, now we all win. Got that Barney's floor looking like a VIM. Anyway, he's talking about he's talking about Barney's in that verse, not Macy's, but the point stands. It was like a huge thing. He like took a very public-facing stance on the on the issue. Um, if you're interested in this, read Frank's stories. He's an amazing court reporter, and this is obviously a very colorful case that has some interesting prongs. So uh, and it sounds like it's a real scene down there. So uh, stay tuned. Moving now from the worlds of music and celebrity to something a little bit sexier, we're going to talk about book publishing and antitrust. Ooh. So thank goodness I'm on today to finally to kind of unpack some of this. Bring in the heat. Yeah, well. Book publishing and antitrust? That's right. Yes. Those worlds never collide. Yes. But here we are. So the Department of Justice filed a lawsuit this week that's challenging Penguin Random House's bid to buy Simon & Schuster in a nearly $2.2 billion deal that would combine two of the so-called big five publishers into one juggernaut. So the action is pretty eye-catching for a few different reasons. It's the third merger challenge that's been filed by the DOJ under the Biden administration. Um, and it also has an oblique connection to Amazon, which is always fun in a story that's talking about federal regulation. Yeah. Um, but the main reason it's unique is because it's not like most antitrust cases in that it doesn't aim to break up a monopoly. Yeah, I'm used to us just talking about how monopolies are bad, and that's what antitrust laws are all about. But let's start with just a little groundwork here. Why is this uh, merger causing a stir? Why does DOJ want to be involved? Sure. So under the proposed deal, uh, Penguin's uh, German parent company is going to pick up Simon & Schuster from Viacom, which has been looking to unload the publisher as part of its strategy to push into other areas like streaming. Yeah, I had kind of lost track of which media companies own which entities now. (laughs) But yeah, Simon & Schuster is under Viacom, and now Penguin's trying to get it. Right. So then last November, they announced this all-cash deal, and it quickly got a lot of flack from regulators, especially in the UK, because that's where Penguin is the largest book publisher of the UK, and it has like 20 to 30% of the market share there. Uh, But those regulators gave it the go-ahead in May. But then this week, the DOJ came knocking, and they said that the merger would create a, a behemoth, essentially, that would tower over its remaining three major rivals in that big five group. Mm-hmm. Uh, its revenues would be more than double those of its next closest competitor, and it would control nearly half of the market for acquiring the rights to books that are expected to be big hits or top sellers. Yeah, I know there's like a lot of factors that go into antitrust challenges, but that one of the, one of the main ones is the impact on consumers, and that is always at the forefront of any any kind of government inquiry into this. Is the DOJ alleging, or do they expect that it's going to result in customers paying higher book prices? 
So not really, or at least not directly. And that's where this action starts to separate itself from a lot of the DOJ's usual antitrust efforts. So instead of going after the merger primarily for its impact on customers, the DOJ says the deal would give Penguin too much influence over what books get published and how much authors are getting paid. Okay. Um, so, so it basically would crash down all my dreams of, of selling a young adult novel then. I Yeah, well, this, you know, uh, this is another sort of nail in one of my favorite bits of pro se lore, Amber's literary career, uh, which which I'm... There's impediments all around me now. Yeah, well, right. yes. <laughs> so it looks like this would actually affect some of the highest paid authors. So that's you, Amber. I'm sorry. This is the barrier to entrance. The most lucrative. Right. Well, so as for a little background, authors are compensated through their work with advances and royalties mm -hmm. and the big five publishers currently compete and have pretty good strong like strong competition between one another for the publishing rights to highly anticipated books um, situations where they're trying to give top dollar advances to some of these authors because they're going to pull in the highest revenues and according to the doj if penguin absorbs simon schuster it will have control of almost half of the market for publishing rights and then the authors would be left with a little bit less leverage for getting higher bids from Penguin's main competitors. Um, and the trickle down from that, according to the government, is that authors would have a harder time making a living, which in turn would shrink the diversity of the books that are actually getting published, which sort of down the line would become bad for customers. Um, so unlike most antitrust cases, which are looking to protect buyers by warding off the con consolidation of sellers, the publishers here are the ones who are doing the buying. It's the sellers, the authors, that are allegedly getting hurt. Uh, which in turn, like I said, hurts the entire market. So instead of a monopoly, this kind of arrangement is referred to as a monopsony, which is a word that looks like a typo and probably would not sell a ton of board games. <laughs> but I don't really know that, actually. Board game people are very eccentric. That's true, you know? but board games yeah. are becoming more esoteric, so right. I don't know if that's actually true. I mean, very interesting that the government is, I mean, someone finally is standing up for the writers uh, in the world. Uh, I'd you'd love to yeah. see that. No, yeah. that is interesting. I'm, that's, I'm joking around. But like the, um, there is, there has been an interesting, I mean, I'm not like an expert on book publishing, but I know enough to know that like, it's been very top heavy. And mm -hmm. like the idea of like highly, like you say, highly anticipated books, like are the only ones that get advances anymore. And the idea that that becomes even more consolidated right. and is driving a legal challenge is very interesting. Yeah, it's cool because I, I think a big part of this is that they just, or at least what the DOJ focuses on a lot is just that they want to maintain a, a big variety of books. And so, yeah, it's all about sort of the concentration, like, you know, the yes. seller's concentration becomes a buyer's concentration. Mm -hmm. and By extension. Right, and yeah. the trickle down is just that we have fewer books, and it's, uh, the other big thing that they said is just it's hard to make a living if you, you know, can't rely on some of that higher competition to drive negotiations between different, uh, different bidders for your rights. Um, so, yeah, it's fascinating, and definitely it's looking at something very different for the DOJ. Uh, I can assume that the actual... Uh, companies that are trying this tie-up, Penguin and Simon and Schuster, had something to say about it. What are they? What? What? I mean, we're just at the complaint stage. We'll see if it if it gets legs and if they divest or do whatever else. What did they say? Just in terms of this complaint being filed, right? Well, obviously they got out ahead of it pretty quickly because this. I mean, we're talking about two point two billion dollar all yeah. cash deal that they really want to get moving on. So yeah, they're they're definitely pushing back. Both have said that the DOJ isn't actually alleging any harm to competition mm -hmm. um, going on here, which is an interesting argument in this situation because, like we said, there's no sort of direct um, effect that this has on pricing for average uh, book customers. Um, and it also says, uh, you know, according to Simon and & Schuster and um, Penguin, they say that this deal would actually benefit customers and authors through a few different synergies like improved book distribution. Um, and they're also saying that the team-up would be aimed at sort of becoming a counterweight to the entrance of Amazon into this industry. Yeah. Um, 
though the DOJ is saying that that's just kind of baloney. I, I think that that's just sort of an easy uh, target for the publishers to kind of push off some of the attention, but, yeah. and DOJ isn't quite buying it. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how these things play out. I mean, we haven't seen a lot of monopsony cases. Did I even say that? Right? Monopsony <laughs> cases. Yes. Uh, historically, but there have been a lot of expectations for the Biden DOJ to be really aggressive on antitrust enforcement. And the suit really feels like a step in that direction. Today, the Labor Department released a controversial emergency rule that fleshes out President Biden's directive that all medium and large employers require their workers to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 or get tested every week. As the saying goes, the devil's in the details. So today we have one of our favorite guests, Vin Guerreri, an editor-at-large on our Employment Authority team to walk us through exactly what's in this rule. Hey, Vin, can't wait to get into this. Hey, everybody. What's going on? Yeah, I think the last time you were on Pro Se a couple months back is when Biden had announced this mandate, but there wasn't a lot of meat on the bone at that point. It's been a couple months since that announcement. And I just want you to give us sort of the top line. What did we find out today? Sure. There's plenty of meat on the bone now, so that's not a problem. Um, so top line. Uh, first thing is that we have a little bit of clarity as to uh, the 100 employer threshold, just to kind of set everything up for everyone. Uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration earlier today, uh, we're recording this on Thursday, issued a, it's called an emergency, basically it's an emergency rule that will cover every employer uh, over 100 employees. And they will have to choose either whether they want to require vaccination among their workforce or whether they want to do a policy that requires vaccination or testing. And testing would have to occur once per week at least. So if you want to go into work and your employer has over 100 people, you're going to have to either be vaccinated and show proof of it or you're going to have to uh, give your employer proof that you took a test every week and that you're clear of COVID-19. What's sort so, of the ballpark then of how many workers this will impact? Approximately, in total, approximately 100, 100 million people. So about 85 million will be covered by OSHA's regulation, and about another 15 million or so will be covered by a uh, sort of a, a rule that was issued in tandem with OSHA by the uh, Health and Human Services Department that is going to cover hospitals and pretty much anyone that uh, is part of the Medicare and Medicaid program. So this is pretty broad. We've got a lot of people covered here. And, you know, these rules are brand new. We're going to get a little bit into the details in a second. But when do these take effect? How soon do employers have to comply? Okay, so there are two key deadlines that we have to keep in mind. January 4th is, I guess, the big one, because that's the date where employers are going to have to show that either their entire workforce is vaccinated or that they're collecting tests anytime someone comes in once per week. So that's the later deadline. The earlier deadline is going to be December 5th, which is when a whole bunch of sort of ancillary policies that OSHA is requiring employers to adopt, that's when employers are going to have to be in compliance. So things like having a COVID 
uh, policy, making sure that uh, their policy is either covering vaccinations or vaccinations and testing. Um, there are a whole bunch of other different uh, notice requirements and, and you know, so these rules can get pretty thick. This one is about, uh, you know, close to 500 pages. So yeah. there's a lot in there uh, that employers are going to need to know. Uh, the bulk of it goes into effect December 5th with the actual vaccination requirement uh, being on January 4th of next year. Gotcha. So then, you know, until we got this most recent rule, employers had a lot of questions uh, that were sort of outstanding, wondering, you know, who counts towards these 100 employee thresholds and who's going to pay for weekly testing if an employee declines to get vaccinated? Uh, Do we get some answers to those kinds of questions? Uh, Yes, we got some. So for the 100 employee threshold, one of the interesting things that people were on the lookout for was how the Labor Department would treat independent contractors. And in the rule that was issued by OSHA, it turns out that independent contractors are not going to be counted towards uh, any headcount that employers take to determine whether or not they get over that threshold. So, yeah, uh, independent contractors will not count towards the 100 worker threshold, but part time work as well. What about the question of who pays for tests? I mean, if you have a workforce where a bunch of people aren't vaccinated and they opt to do that weekly testing, are employers on the hook for that or are the workers? That is one of the, also one of the interesting questions that employers had ahead of time. And the answer to that is going to be uh, employers do not have to cover the cost of tests if they don't want to. Um, they can. An employer can choose to take on that cost if uh if they want, but they're not required to under OSHA's regulations. They also are not going to have to cover the cost of masks. If an unvaccinated worker uh, chooses the testing option, OSHA is going to require that that individual uh, be masked at all times while at work, but employers aren't going to have to cover the cost of that uh, protective equipment. That cost, uh, assuming employers don't want to pick it up on their own, that cost will have to be borne by the worker themselves. So even though this is a mandate that puts certain burdens on employers for lots of like reporting and and managing the compliance of this, it does spare them some of the expense that could have been in this rule. Yes, it does. Um, And that is a pretty substantial expense. If it's an employer that had any significant number of people that choose the testing option, uh, you could you could be talking, you know, easily in the in the thousands or tens of thousands of dollars just every week on the amount of tests that employers would be on the hook for. So that's a, a, that's a big win for employers that they're not going to have to uh, be burdened by that. So now, Vin, last year, sort of like last year with the lockdowns, you know, when it comes to vaccine mandates, we've seen a lot of different restrictions in place for different cities and states. What does this law do to those uh, sort of distinct or individualized restrictions? Yeah, that's actually one of the interesting parts about it. And as I've kind of spoken to a lot of lawyers uh, today in the few hours that the rule has been out, that's one of the things they've pointed out. The uh, Labor Department went out of their way to be very clear that this rule is intended to supersede any actions that states or municipalities take that really in any way restrict an employer's ability to either have a vaccine requirement or have any sort of workplace masking requirement. Um, OSHA is being very clear. They think their rule preempts anything that the states do. And that could 
potentially set up a fight in a lot of courts because uh, states, even just in a few hours that this rule has been out, a lot of states have uh, indicated very clearly that there are going to be lawsuits on the way. And OSHA itself in the rule called out specific states by name that have taken actions recently that they think aren't valid uh, in light of the regulations that were issued. So uh, there, there very well may be a clash coming between the federal government and the states here over you know whose turf it is to be able to regulate workplace safety. Let's get a little more into that, because even before, you know, when Biden first announced this and in these months we've been waiting to get the full contours of the rule, you've had a lot of people in Congress in particular on, in the GOP side saying that they didn't like this. They thought it was an overreach. Um, what has the White House said about that? And how might, might we see these clashes continuing to shape up in terms of actual litigation? In terms of actual litigation, uh, there have already been a few cases filed, uh, even just this afternoon, and very likely there will be more in the days and weeks ahead. Um, Republican attorneys general have basically spent the entire day uh, issuing statements on on social media and through press releases. Uh, They're very clear that they're going to be challenging this in the very near future. Um, members of Congress have, have gone as far as to call for OSHA to be abolished today wow. because of the rule that was issued. So this isn't this isn't something that opponents of the regulation are going to be taking lying down. And OSHA and some of the uh, higher ups at the Department of Labor uh, kind of anticipated it, I think. And some of the statements that they came out with today seem to uh, sort of try to get out in front of some of the arguments that are going to be made by the regulations opponents. And it seems like everyone's kind of, uh, you know, staking out their positions right. and kind of getting their arguments out in the public sphere so, when it comes time to actually, you know, litigate these things in court. Let me see if I can guess these arguments correctly, Ben, and correct me when I get any of this wrong. But seems like the GOP, um, especially the attorneys general that are Republicans in, in various states, are going to say, no, your federal law maybe doesn't preempt my state regulation and or this is overreach and you can't do this the way you've rolled it out anyway as this emergency style rule. Flip side, probably Labor Department says this is exactly what OSHA is for. We're supposed to protect people, especially in emergencies. We have full mandate to do this. The constitutional arguments are going to play very well in public, and it could be that some of the procedural arguments about how the rule was actually crafted and how it was issued, uh, those may not be the, the, the. I don't want to use the term sexy. <laughs> <laughs> I think we already those, have on this podcast. Those, <laughs> those might be the ones that catch courts' uh, attention, maybe more so than the constitutional arguments. I mean, I love a good preemption fight, honestly. So I, I hope uh, I hope we get to read about that a lot. But I do think this is going to be really interesting to see how it plays out because we have a real world pandemic emergency and two sides that really disagree on on the best way to move forward. So we'll be watching all the many, many stories I know you're going to be filing on this, Ben. I will reach into antiquity for my analogy. Uh, Helen of Troy, they said that she was the face that launched a thousand ships. 
this might be the federal regulation that launches a thousand lawsuits. <laughs> and I am ready. We are ready for each and every one of them, I think. Great. Well, we can't wait to read your continuing coverage on this, Vin. Yeah, Vin, uh, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Our show is something offbeat. I'm very happy that we're going to the well of television this week. Yes, we all three of us uh, live in the tri-state area. We work in the media. We are on a podcast. I believe somewhere in a contract it says we have to talk about succession. That's fair. It is yeah. required. You know what I'm saying? Like this is this is what's driving the media ecosphere. This is a show I quite love, even though as I've said in the past, it sometimes feels like I'm watching media Twitter, the prestige TV show. Version. I'm still into that, though, so yeah. it's fine. Right. This is the Twitter I traffic in. Anyway, the reason we're talking about succession at the end of the show this week is that, um, and I should say, uh, we'll get, we're, we're going to go into spoilers here. We are current through season three of episode three, which is the most recent episode at, at the time of our recording. Uh, if you haven't watched it, just give a skip ahead, maybe come back uh, when you're caught up. Um, but the point is, in this new season, it's becoming a legal quagmire. It is. Um, we're knee-deep in lawyers. They're everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's a it is a legal sort of battle that is embroiling uh, Waystar Royco is embroiled in, um, and then yes, I wanted to use this part of the show to basically walk through the many lawyers that are piling up on Succession, and um, do a little power ranking. I don't really like power rankings, but Amber said I had to, and so I did. and so that's what I so that's what I did. I appreciate you taking that note okay. because I just feel like you know. I wanted us to have a robust conversation about which of these lawyers is the best. Yeah, right. okay. I mean, I just think they're all pretty absurdly funny, which is the appeal of this <laughs> show. But right. well, okay. it's, it's hard to sell a robust conversation, but a power ranking? Oh, yeah. That's there you go. There you go. Oh, yeah. That is headlineable, memeable, whatever. Okay, so um, got a list here. But before that, have some honorable mentions, okay? Sure. First of all, not even technically a lawyer yet, but... Greg's cousin Greg's uh 1L friend girlfriend is he dating this person Leah has she yeah. been on the show before I I did not I honestly, clock her I didn't as remember that's been on before okay but yeah, I, I didn't just sort her. of I loved the line she had where she was like do you want me to text my professor text your yes <laughs> oh man so shout and, Gre- out to- and Greg's saying yes to that <laughs> yeah. was my favorite part yes. absolutely Dean you kind of have some cousin Greg vibes by the way oh yeah is it yeah because <laughs> I'm younger than the other people here and, and you're taller experience yeah, yeah and you're yeah, taller yeah. than me so ah, gotcha. that's that's basically all it youthful and tall and then you're in anyway right, yeah okay other honorable mention my man Tom Wamsgams for my money the best character on the show that's just a personal opinion at the very end of episode three, the most recent episode, calls up uh, a lawyer we haven't seen, haven't even seen yet. That's why it's an honorable mention. He, I I can't rank this person. Rex Hendon mm. of Great Hend- of uh, Bergman Hendon and Weiss. So he's a named ooh partner. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a named partner there. I didn't pick up on that. Wow. Uh, he's um. I mean, Tom of course has floated the idea of taking the fall, doing yep. jail time for the sake of this scandal. Could he flip? I don't know. Uh, we'll see when he gets a meeting with Rex Hendon. 
anyway, uh, those are the honorable mentions. Uh, here are my rankings, okay? This is not exhaustive. I'm not sure if I've covered every lawyer who's ever been on the show, but this is like the most recent rash of them. Okay. Uh, so uh, num- at, at number four, we have Oliver Noonan, who is better known as the big law creep who shows up at Greg's apartment after he talks with Leah, the law student. I loved this appearance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, number one, anything with with cousin Greg is just so funny and so great. Yeah. But he's so flummoxed, and this <laughs> lawyer is so oily. Yes. That that's what I love about it. That it's that perfect juxtaposition of those two types of characters. Yeah, I love the mystery that follows behind Oliver. Who said his name? Oliver was. Noonan is the I, character's I, name. I, yes. I assumed his name was Chad as soon as we saw him. Yeah, <laughs> he's got Chad vibes. Yeah, but yeah. I, I I really did love that scene where he finally comes in, just because there's a there's a sort of a line of terror yes. to it that I think that <laughs> yeah. you yeah. can only get from either like a serial killer or a lawyer. Yes. And he really he walks that line really, he's, really he's, well. He's, he's riding the line. He he works for a firm called. I, I had to consult the actual closed captioning. Oh, on I did it. that too. Arbuthnot Weiss yeah. is the name of the firm <laughs> this guy works for. So like vaguely European, maybe right. they were founded in like Brussels like a century ago. I don't right. know. Uh, in this reality. Anyway, he's a creep. Uh, love the illustration of Greg being confused by the legal process. I says, also like, do you choose me or do I choose? I he doesn't know that, that he's his lawyer. Right. Yes. Uh, okay. Um, next, number three. Roger Pugh, who is, uh, if you don't clock that name, is the is Greg's other lawyer. Greg has two lawyers, maybe, that we know of. This is played by Peter Riegert of Animal House. Um, he is the sort of like... Um, idealistic, uh, liberal, uh, hard-on-his-sleeve type who wants to put the system on trial in addition to representing Greg. What did you guys think of this character? Well, I thought it was a classic trope of movies and TV for lawyers that if you are idealistic as a lawyer in any way, your office is messy. Yes. right. We, you can't have a clean office, apparently. This is a show that traffics in aesthetics a lot, like with the with the fashion, with the, yep. with the clothes the characters wear, and the sets that they and the the, 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 the slick corporate boardrooms that they inhabit. But yes, the, his office looks like an unkept corner of like my college library or something. Lots of papers, lots of books. Right. I mean, it's it's the the classic setup for beleaguered understaffed kind of vibes yeah well and and also like you know he's like he's like just like making small talk about his coffee or whatever he's <laughs> right. talking about he says what like like my my favorite quote here i just i was taking notes he said in addition to representing greg he say we will quote expose the cultural contradictions of capitalism as reified in the architecture of corporate America. Right. Uh, <laughs> this guy is an Ivy Leaguer who has also just been doing public defense for like 40 years yes. and, and just doesn't understand why anyone ever rose up higher than that level. No. Yes. Um, uh, love that character. I don't, I, it's too soon to tell if it's like a bit part or whatever. Oh, I hope anyway. we see more. I know. I hope we see more too. And I, I will say as far as power rankings go, I mean, it seems like Greg is willing to flip at any time too. Slash he's flipping every, every 30 yeah. minutes on this, yes. on this yeah. show. So I have a feeling we could see a much bigger, you know, that this really could be kind of, uh, you know, one of the other sharks sort of circling Logan at this point. Yeah. Yes. Uh, next number two, um, Newcomer this season, um, just like everybody else on the list so far, uh, Lisa Arthur, who is played by Sanaa Lathan, who is sort of, um, if you had to do an elevator pitch on this character, I guess is sort of a corporate fixer type. Um, they, make, is, they make a lot of hay out of it being a woman and a woman of color. A woman of color, and, yeah. And so lots of perception, you know, another thing succession traffics in very well is the perceptions yes. of the choices people make. Right. So everyone is targeting wanting her as their lawyer because she represents 
what they want her to represent. Yeah. And because it's a TV show and the universe is very small, she's so good that she's in demand by conflicting sides sure. of this legal drama where uh, Kendall uh, retains her, basically. Uh, and then Shiv also goes. She's get, she, they're are they college friends or they're they're just uh, they're they're. I, I don't think it's spelled out, but it's implied that they know each other somewhere along the, and the lines. And then she just can't. Great illustration of being conflicted out, you know. And she was just like, I took the meeting as a courtesy or whatever she says and all that. Um, she's also dressed in great fashion. Have to point that out. Yes. And her first scenes are in one of those slick like. New yeah. York City boardrooms. Mm -hmm. right. Lots of glass. Yeah. Yes, lots mm -hmm. of glass, great views, all of that. So you, you definitely get the high power out of her initial introduction. Yes. Um, she also has uh, a great line when she is holed up in, let me see if I get this right, it's Kendall's ex-wife's apartment in episode two. <laughs> That's right, right yeah. Uh, when she asks for, she, she well, she, she first of all, she's very precise. And she says, I will need eight to ten hours with you soon to go over this stuff. It's amazing. And he says, I have bigger fish to fry. And she says, bigger fish than staying out of prison. And she's like <laughs> warning him about subpoenas and FBI raids and all that. Right. Um, very interested to see what goes on with that character. Number one, though, I have to say, the OG, for a long time, the only lawyer, the only visible lawyer on the show, Jerry Kelman, uh, oh, the Jerry. general, the in-house counsel of Waystar Royco, who is now serving, I mean, I love Jerry, great character, now serving as a puppet CEO that looks like she's going to get knifed at some point here. Well, I would yeah. never count Jerry out there. I know. She's right. so smart, and she knows that the only reason she was installed is as puppet yes, CEO. Yes, that's true. So I trust in her abilities to... Make the most of it. Yeah, well, I think yeah. Frank said something to that effect in this most recent episode. He, he says, you know, what? it's a pretty good line for Frank, who doesn't have a lot of great lines, but he says, you know, the movie we really need to reboot is Pinocchio, the puppet that came to life. Yeah, and, yeah. and exactly. I, think, I think that's really, yes. I mean, it's pretty astute. So clearly, Jerry is, yeah, she's kind of making her own moves here and kind of has her own well-being in mind. I hope I I hope I'm wrong. Um, quite an endearing character, even beyond her, like, legal acumen, which is clearly very sharp. Um, I enjoyed the... Um, taking a picture of her name on the crawl when she was <laughs> named, oh, which, of that. course, Roman calls her out for. One of, like, two human moments in this show. I know. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Yeah. She's got um, – I I dove deep into the Jerry Cannon only because she's been on the show the longest of these of these um, characters we're talking about. Uh, some great one-liners from her. Uh, most recently, when the FBI is, of course, about to raid the, the Waystar uh, headquarters, she says, quote, the government isn't a – Pez dispenser. You don't push a button and something pops out the other end. Quite enjoyed that. Yeah. Uh, in season two, when there is the um, the whistleblower that's about to go public, uh, she says, uh, "I hereby convene the meeting of the newly formed what the f are we gonna do committee." Just <laughs> very good. Finally, um, ever the lawyer brain um, when the when the reporter. Also in season two, when the reporter was interviewing Greg and then was going to write a book, and then she's being pressed about this on the plane, and Logan, of course, is clueless and asking her, like, what can we do legally? And she says, I can't actually, in this nation yet, sadly, halt the publication of a book. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, like, so great. Uh, uh, you know what? I will say, I don't know if it's just that we've talked about TV and movies for so many years together, yeah, yeah. but uh, we've we've hive-minded on this power ranking. I agree entirely with how you line these people up. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so anyway, Succession is a wonderful TV show. Uh there may be more lawyers to come, clearly. May perhaps we will revisit this. I don't know. But... I'm thrilled that it's tipped over into legal territory. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I always so. want to talk about yes. it on the show. So this was 
a, a great synergy for us. Thanks for bringing it all to us, Alex. Thank well, I should you. just point out real quick too that this is also a season about media. So I mean, this is just us here, it's, right? It's, I mean, us. it's a it's, a, it's about sure. media perception meets actual legal action, and yeah, so it's it's our bread and butter for sure. Much, Definitely. Much like Kendall, I will not be buying you a forty thousand dollar watch oh, to end your on. appearance on the show. Yeah, Sorry. that's not that's not customary. Uh-huh. We're not. Uh, we're... I just I just got my patent on it and everything. Oh, <laughs> can't can't help you. All right, well, great show today, guys. Thanks for being with us, Dean. Yeah, it was great being here. And Alex. Thank you. We'd also like to thank a lot of other people that helped put our show together, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Vin Guerreri, and our contributing reporters, Frank Runyon and Brian Koenig. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform so that other people can more easily find our show. And if you want to read anything more about what we've talked about today, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.